Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... I've talked to many women who they're like, I basically was told my entire life that sex is bad. One day, I'd suddenly I'm married and it's not bad anymore. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we continue with part two of our interview on language and gender theory with Dr. Abigail Favale. For part one, be sure to check out our previous episode, 65. One objection that gets brought up in the discussions that I've had when someone asks me to talk about how I understand sex and gender, they will pose a counterexample of people with intersex conditions. Uh, what about people with Klinefelter syndrome or Swire syndrome or a variety of other genetic abnormalities where somebody's sex doesn't appear to fall neatly into male or female? Uh, is this something you've encountered? Absolutely. I think this is a very classic move that activists make, and it's a very effective move because... As soon as you play, I, I call it playing the intersex card. As soon as you play the intersex card, like, well, sex isn't binary because intersex people exist. The average person doesn't know enough about intersex conditions to be able to respond to that. And so then they began to question themselves like, oh, well, well, shoot, maybe that's true. So it's, it's a very effective move, I think, but it also hides a lot of misunderstandings about intersex conditions. So intersex is an umbrella term referring to a range of variations in sexual development. So sexual development is a process and like any biological development process, it can get disrupted along the way and create certain conditions that are irregular. And there are other terms. Intersex, I think, is confusing because it implies that people who have conditions of sexual development that are irregular are somehow between male and female, as if they're this other sex. So intersex is most often talked about as if it's this other thing, this third category, um, completely exempted from male and female, almost like it's a third sex or not sexed. Not only is that really inaccurate, but it's also very dehumanizing to people who have congenital conditions of sexual development, um, which can be very, very serious and even life-threatening depending upon um, what condition one has. So I would love to see more informed discussion about this, especially in, in Catholic circles, because I think science is very much on our side on this. So one of the figures that's thrown around about how common intersex conditions are, uh, you'll see the 1.7% figure thrown around. You'll hear activists say that intersex conditions are as common as red hair, right? 1.7%. So that figure comes from the work of a biologist named Anne Fosto Sterling. And basically she gets that number by including anyone who does not, and this is a quote from her work, does not fit the platonic ideal of male and female. <laughs> right. I know you're laughing, right? So my reaction is like, well, that would be me, right? She includes things, for example, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which happens to women who have certain hormonal irregularities that can affect fertility. But those women are women. There's no sense in which those women are not female, right? So to classify someone with PCOS under intersex, and then to cast intersex as something outside of the sex binary is ridiculous, honestly. And it's very dehumanizing to to women, because it's basically saying, well, because you don't fit this, the ideal or the, the norm, then you're not a real woman. That's what's happening here. That's kind of the logical conclusion of this argument. Now, there are conditions that are very rare that create some sexual ambiguity. And that figure is 0.02% of births. So 
to put it differently, in 99.98% of all births, sex is readily apparent and unambiguously identifiable. I mean, that's a pretty incredible figure, honestly. But even in that 0.02%, sex is present, but it takes a little more, it has to be a little more carefully discerned, right? So you need to look at um, karyotype or genetics. You need to look at how the body is organized as a whole, which includes the production of gametes, as well as phenotype or what one's anatomy looks like. Um, and also hormones. So if you're looking at all five of those levels that characterize biological sex, then even in these cases, um, sex is present and can be discerned. So it's just, it's not accurate to say that congenital conditions of sexual development mean that sex is not binary because these intersex conditions refer to variations within a stable binary. So we're a sexually reproducing species we only produce two gametes. There are only two sexes. There's no third gamete. There's no third sex. What bothers me about it is that it's really dehumanizing to intersex people because anytime you see someone playing this card, the purpose of it is to affirm an active, a trans activist understanding of sex. It's never really about affirming what intersex people need or even want. You know, I'm by no means a studied expert in any of these related fields, but I've looked at it a little bit and I have done some amateur statistical analysis on the publicly available figures for a few of these conditions, like uh, the two that I mentioned, Kleinfelter and Swire syndrome, and a few others, and added all those uh, together and they come up to about 0.5% of the population. But I know those figures um, can vary quite a bit. You know, one thing that I found in researching this is that it sort of feels similar to the relationship between the rational capacity and human beings rational nature so our classical definition of the human person is rational animal right but that doesn't mean that the human being is actively reasoning or even immediately capable of actively reasoning just because somebody is in a persistent vegetative state or has some sort of developmental cognitive disorder uh, like a very se severe one like anencephaly uh, doesn't mean they're not human just because they can't actually reason. They're still ordered to reason, but their development has impeded that at a certain point, but it doesn't change what they are. Absolutely. And in a similar way, I think we can understand uh, these intersex conditions as well, where every human being is still either male or female. And even though it's outwardly ambiguous in these exceptional cases, that ambiguity doesn't signal that they're not either male or female. All it signals is that their development has impeded their being outwardly recognizable as male or female. So, for example, a man with Kleinfelter syndrome who is ordered to generate in another still can't generate in himself the way a woman can generate in herself. And also there's no known medical instance of somebody being born with fully functioning genitalia of both sexes. Nobody is capable of both generating in themselves as a woman can and also generating in another as a man can. That's just not a thing. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's then, never happened. And even in that case, you would still have a sex binary between large gametes and small gametes. They would just both be present in one individual, right? So again, there wouldn't be this like third kind of gamete or this third sex. And one, one other thing I would like to say about intersex issues. So intersex activism arose in the 90s, mainly as a pushback 
against surgeries on infants that were not medically necessary, but were only cosmetic. So that, and this is often called infant genital mutilation or IGM by intersex activists. And that activist effort was very successful by the 2000s, medical best practices were being changed. And so that doesn't happen in America anymore in terms of purely cosmetic genital surgeries on intersexed infants. But what's interesting to me is that in the history of intersex activism, there has been this emphasis on the integrity, wholeness, and health of the body. So the the ground of being against those kinds of surgeries, it's not just about infants can't consent, but it's actually about the fact that they're mutilating, they can reduce in loss of sexual function and have physical side effects later down the road. So intersex activism has tended to really hold on to this idea of the importance of health and only having a kind of medical intervention when it's it's medically necessary, when the health of the individual is at risk. And I see that a very different attitude toward health and wholeness and bodily integrity in trans activism, which tends not to see that as a value. Um, so the emphasis is put on consent, right? So IgM is a problem because infants can't consent, but it's not a problem inherently because the procedures that were imposed upon infants um, are the very same kinds of procedures that trans people will opt into, right? So that's another difference between um, intersex and trans issues that I think is really important. But the bottom line is these are very different things that should not be conflated. And anytime they are conflated by activists, it's always to serve the needs of an activist transgender narrative and it's never to serve the the needs of, of intersex people. This might be a good time to pivot to our last topic because we really do need to increase the level of compassion and sensitivity that we exhibit, not just towards people who have intersex conditions, but towards anybody that our discussion has covered, regardless of the level of gender identity discordance they experience, whether it's trans or non-binary or neither, however they identify. The sufferings that these people have experienced very widely and really do need more attention from us. Because one talking point that the activists bring up that is absolutely true is the elevated suicide risk among people with gender identity discordance, Mm -hmm. which is radically higher than the general population. And this is something we really need to be aware of. And in a lot of cases, this is because of bullying, abuse they receive from family members or at school or just from strangers in society who look at them and see that they're different. And we really do need to exhibit a much greater degree of compassion for people who are suffering. And if you listening to this happen to be experiencing any form of gender identity discordance, please know that God loves you and that we love you. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And my interest in this topic is driven out of a sense of concern for human dignity, but also because I, I really love people who don't fit the norm. You know, I really love gender non-conforming people. I did not fit the typical female boxes growing up. And that, that was difficult. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a conservative evangelical setting and, and I often felt really hemmed in as a girl because the things I like to do and the kinds of traits that I had um, weren't really given encouragement or a full range of expression. And I, I also just like being around people who are, are interesting and unique and different. You know, I, I love that. And I think one reason I'm really passionate about this topic is that I, I think this framework, this activist framework 
is harming those people. Um, I think there's a very real suffering that's experienced by people who have gender dysphoria and the causes of that dysphoria can be so various. It's not just a cookie cutter story. And I think that the activist driven narrative that's increasingly shaping um, psychotherapy practice and medical practice posits medical transition as this silver bullet or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, that will solve it all, right? So if you're, if you're deeply suffering in your sense of identity, if you feel like you don't fit in, if you connect more with kind of the stereotypes of the opposite sex, then here c- consent to this lifetime of medicalization and that will solve all your problems. And I think that's, that's a false promise. And I think we're increasingly seeing that the physical consequences of that kind of medicalization um, have not been robustly studied. And the fact that this is increasingly being pushed on, on adolescents and children is deeply concerning to me. So um, the reason I'm interested in this topic is because I'm very concerned about the medicalization of gender non-conforming children. So the suicide narrative or the talking point tends to be that if you don't transition children and adolescents who experience gender dysphoria, they will commit suicide, right? And this is a talking point that parents hear from doctors, from therapists. And it's terrifying. I mean, can you imagine being told that as a parent? Like if you don't do this, if you don't put your kid on puberty blockers, then they will commit suicide. It's a very effective emotional manipulation tactic. But the problem is there's not good evidence to support the idea that transition reduces the suicidality that you mentioned, because it's absolutely true that trans identifying people are at a higher risk, a much higher risk of suicide. But two studies, there are very few long-term studies about the effects of transition on that increased risk. And the two that exist actually show that it increases even more after medical transition. So one of these studies is a Swedish study that was done in 2011. And it's the only long-term study that exists that has high quality evidence with controls. And it shows a 19 times higher risk of suicide post-transition. One problem we have in realm of healthcare is that there's not a lot of high quality evidence. Most of the studies that will be cited by activists do not have any long-term follow-up. And in the in the stories I've heard from trans-identifying people who have then detransitioned, their transition regret didn't kick in immediately. It was years down the road. I think initially there is a kind of euphoria from transitioning, like, oh, finally, I'm finally myself. This is the route I've been pursuing for years. And I'm finally here, right? I mean, that would create a kind of a kind of euphoria. But then, you know, years down the road, especially when the long-term medical consequences of being on cross-sex hormones constantly or having surgeries, and when those start to kick in, you know, that can really be be kind of a game changer. So I think compassion is absolutely essential. And that has to be driving any kind of critique of this narrative, because I think that the narrative that's being offered by activists and being sold to people who are suffering is a harmful one. But if we if we react to that by demonizing the people who have accepted that narrative and who are caught up in that narrative, if we reject them from our parishes and our communities and our families, that's absolutely the wrong the wrong approach to take. So I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And we'll have a link to that Swedish study in the show notes. There's still a lot we don't know about the best responses 
to this constellation of issues. But one thing we do know is that the use of language has to be respected when we're considering these responses. And so uh, for that reason, uh, Dr. Bavali, thank you for coming on and helping clarify some of that language. Yeah, thank you so much. And where can people find you on the internet? Well, I have one toe in social media and it's on Twitter. So you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Favali Abs. So my last name and then abs. I will also say that I have finished a book on this topic that addresses a lot of the things I've I've been discussing today, but in much, much more depth. Oh, really? Wow. That will be coming out with Ignatius Press, tentatively called The Genesis of Gender. Yeah. So it's in the editorial process now. I don't know when exactly it will be released, but that's on its way. Well, I don't think we can uh, link to the book if it hasn't been published yet. No, you can't link to that. But we can certainly link to your Twitter handle in the episode notes. So Dr. Favali, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. And moving on to Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, where we are passing the halfway point this episode. And as we do, we welcome back Kara. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, good Reb. We uh, found that Chapter 7 was a little bit shorter, so we are going to be doing Chapters 7 through 9 of Edward Sree's Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. So, Kara, you want to get us kicked off with Chapter 7? Yeah, definitely. Chapter 7 is really less about explaining chastity and more about explaining why chastity Chastity is so resented in the culture today. So first of all, you know, I think in general, and Sri and JP2 certainly explain in this chapter that virtue itself is under attack nowadays. And anybody who is not striving for virtue tends to resent those who are. You know, think about the person in the office who likes to gossip or groups of people in an office who like to gossip. And if there's the one person who doesn't want to participate, it's not that everybody suddenly is chastised. Often they really just dislike the person who doesn't want to participate in the gossiping. And that's really what JP2 would call a resentment of virtue. And when it comes to chastity, chastity specifically is, first of all, not just about not having sex before marriage. It's actually the virtue of affirming the full value of the person and essentially raising all of your reactions to a person and about a person to the level of being personal. So what that means is that even if you have an instinctual sexual reaction to a person, the virtue of chastity would urge us to not only see the sexual value in the person, but to see the full value of the person. It's a sort of raising and elevating of the way that you see someone. And so in the same way that people who resent the person who refuses to gossip, in our culture today, the way that they see it is that People resent those who are trying to see beyond simply the sexual value in others and who want to see everyone as the full human being that they are. Now, we obviously have a sexual nature, and that's not a bad thing. And JP2 is very emphatic in this chapter and, and three in interpreting him that true love involves both the subjective and objective. We don't suddenly meet somebody and immediately like, oh, I see all of the virtues of this person and like, that is what I like about them. No, your your initial reaction to somebody is that, oh, they're really nice. I like their smile. She's cute. 
and that is a totally normal and even you know natural way that we encounter people. The problem that we see when people reject chastity is that it doesn't go any further. And if anything, they put an overemphasis on those characteristics in which case they fall into a more using kind of relationship. So they're focused on how does this person make me feel, this person who I'm sexually attracted to, do they reciprocate and therefore I feel good because I'm the one who's getting something out of this interaction. Right. And that, that speaks to that transactional variety of relationship mm-hmm. that we discussed in uh, past episodes when we were talking about the uh, sex in the city ruined my life person in New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I mean, I think that's that's really just the underscore of this entire chapter is that, you know, if you aren't trying to see the person for their whole self, you're essentially reducing them and ultimately using them for the way that it makes you feel. And so the entire idea of chastity is to move away from the idea of using somebody and towards the idea of being able to step into the objective view of them and to objectively love them eventually. And then in chapter eight, uh, Sri moves on to discussing chastity a little bit more directly. And like you were saying, he talks about how the root of the word chaste just means clean. And sometimes um, purity culture has gotten a bad name, and partly for good reason, because it's been distorted by some people who maybe don't have the clearest insight on what makes human sexual relationships good. And here is where Sri really hammers home the point of chastity being a positive virtue and not just one big long no. Because it is a yes to the other person, and it's a yes that requires a lot of supporting no's, a lot of instances of giving the answer no for the sake of the one you're saying yes to. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that idea that any time that you say yes, you are inherently saying no to other things. And it seems as though this sort of negative view of chastity is only focusing on the no's as opposed to being reminded of the yes. Yeah. And one one example where I experienced this in a totally other context is when I'm in the grocery store and I'm going down the chip aisle and there is an entire aisle of hundreds of varieties of chips and I get this paralysis of choice because there are so many of them. They all look uniquely good and savory, but you, you got to limit your choice to three or maybe one. But in any event, that means saying no to the rest, right? The forsaking all others part of marriage isn't just about telling a bunch of people no. It's part and parcel of saying yes to one person. When somebody enters into a sexual relationship that is not animated by the virtue of chastity, they aren't able to make a complete self-gift to each other for whatever reason, whether they're contracepting, whether they are promiscuous, whether they are just simply cohabitating. For whichever of those reasons, there's some aspect that's missing that makes the relationship not a complete self-care. And therefore, as Sri says, a sexual relationship for them would be a lie. Maybe not a lie that they maliciously intend or anything like that, but the outward sign they are giving with their bodies does not reflect the inward reality of how they know and love one another. So Sri then goes into the uh, sixth and the ninth commandments. Yeah, one of the things that I find interesting about the ninth commandment is that it's couched with a lot of other things that you're not supposed to covet. Um, and I don't think that they actually bring this quote up in the in the reading, but I couldn't help but remember, you know, Christ in the Sermon on the Mount saying, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think that that is the key in where that things all sort of turn around. 
lust in the heart is necessarily the first step before actual adultery would even be committed. And one of the things that you can get into um, that I found really interesting was just the fact that that initial attraction is not sinful. So how do we get to the point where we know we've gone from, I'm just initially attracted, that's a totally normal and you know, non-sinful action to all the way at the other end, I've now committed adultery in my heart because I'm lusting after someone. Yeah, Jesus really helps us interpret the sixth and the ninth in a healthy way, where he does tie them together in a really elegant and simple way. Yeah, and I think JP2 does a good job in this chapter of kind of walking through what those stages are. JP2 really helpfully maps the nature of lustful thoughts onto the church's understanding of how temptation works in general. And I mean, he basically says that stage one is you recognize the attraction, which you're totally in the clear. Everybody has attraction. That's a totally normal, healthy thing. But the second stage is where things can get kind of dicey. And that's where you recognize the initial attraction, but due to our fallen nature, our inclination will be to entertain those thoughts, to not just be acknowledging of the person, but to begin to fantasize or think about your life with them. Or, you know, I know lots of girls who have told me like, oh gosh, I like have this crush on this guy. And like, you know, every time I come in, he comes into the room, I just can't help but think about our life together. And it's like, have you ever actually talked to this person? Do you know them? Like, you know, it's not necessarily a super lustful thought, but it's moving towards a fantasy of the person as opposed to engaging the reality of the person. And JP2 says that you're kind of in a dangerous zone. You maybe haven't crossed over into sin yet. It's also partly, it's not like an ascent of the will to have attraction and even to feel like you want to have more interest in the person is not necessarily an ascent of the will, but there comes a point when you either entertain those thoughts or you turn them aside and say, this isn't healthy, this isn't good, I'm not seeing the virtue of the real full person. And that's the line that gets crossed into the stage three that he would say is the lustful, sinful part when you have moved from a natural reaction into consent of the will to be fantasizing about the person, which I thought was like a really helpful thing because sometimes I think certainly when I, you know, when I've been in young adult discussions, it can make it seem like if you don't start turning your eyes away and saying a Hail Mary, the second that you have a, you know, interest in a person, ah, you're, sin you're sinning, you need to go to confession. Like that is not the line. The line is when you have sort of assented to allowing the fantasy to continue in your mind. It's not that like initial attraction or even the like secondary stage of like reacting to the initial attraction. It's the, yeah, it's the assent of the will to actually condone yourself to continue to think about the thing that is leading you away from seeing the fullness of the person. And I've, one thing I found in this treatment is that, to your point, Sri is very textured and nuanced about this, not saying that all three stages are sinful. Earlier in the process, there's still a possibility of entering into an occasion of sin, but that thing in itself, having a spontaneous reaction, is not bad in and of itself. Um, I found that that sort of nuance and that texture to carry through his treatment of chastity. And then later on, as we get to chapter nine, modesty, where often people who, uh, whether Catholic or otherwise, who 
talk about modesty can be seen as uh, not being body positive, saying that the body is, you know, the body is evil and therefore you should cover it up and you should be ashamed is not really the whole story as Sri will continue to unpack. Because shame isn't necessarily an indication of something negative, and therefore it shouldn't be used in a right context to make someone feel bad about themselves or make make them feel like they're worth less. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can jump right into sort of summarizing chapter nine from there. I mean, essentially, chapter nine is about it's about modesty. I will be the first to admit I hate having to talk about modesty. I, having run a women's magazine for many years, I've been asked to give many modesty talks over the years, and it's very painful. There's a lot of, I think people have a lot of baggage about modesty, exactly because of what you're talking about, Andrew, that I think that there are so many messages that say women's bodies are inherently leading men into lust. Right. You know, there's, there's a lot of people who essentially um, objectify women's bodies under the name of modesty, where it's like, oh, her skirt is one inch too short. And it's like, why are you looking at her skirt so closely you know, if you really thought that you were trying to be modest, maybe you would just not spend so much time obsessing about how long her skirt is. Modesty is not simply about clothing. You know, Sri leads with this that in general, modesty a desire is a desire to keep things private that should be kept private or to not a desire not to show off. You know, there can be somebody who is embarrassed to have it called out to their entire class that they got the highest score on the test. And that is like that is proper modesty if they're like, oh, gosh, I'm like, I didn't need to be called out and put on a pedestal. Right. That's also modesty. And it's this idea that you should keep hidden things that are not meant to be shared broadly with the world. He uses that example of shame really well, where he takes an example of something that nobody would ever think would be negative, doing well on a test uh, and getting recognition for it, as an example of why shame isn't always about something bad. Yeah, absolutely. You can have a healthy sense of shame. You can have a healthy sense of modesty and wanting to hide that, or not hide, but not to, not openly advertise, right? This good thing about you, because you don't need to plaster your strengths for the world to see at all times, yeah. right? That's not what they're for. It also is a good illustration of the fact that there's a proper time, place, and context for everything. You would still expect the kid who got a good grade in school to go home and share the good news with their parents in the same way that when it comes to sexual modesty, there should be no sense of embarrassment or shame between a married couple. And that's because that is the proper place to be fully revealed because in the context of the marital bond, you are able to fully give and receive the other person, including their sexual value. But outside of that bond, it is like an improper place to be sharing those things. Right. So modest is hottest, but in all contexts. <laughs> and we're only secondarily concerned about clothing here. Yeah, definitely. Although I will say this this chapter is very focused on clothing, not in a um, like prescriptive way, but I think I think that they deal with it. And with the idea of modesty in a very um, even-handed manner. And so I think, first of all, it's well noted that modesty, when it comes to dress and when it comes to the understanding of the relationship between modesty and chastity, is that modesty is first and foremost a reminder to others to see the value of the person. And we're saying woman here because, let's be honest, like, 
the most common way in which someone is being physically and sexually objectified is that men are more visual and they tend to have a more visceral visual reaction to women than women do to men. There are definitely people who have that. Lots of women struggle with porn. Lots of women struggle with all kinds of things. So it can go in both directions. You know, I think this we can be safe in saying for shorthand, generally, you know, women are more sexualized than men and men care about that more. I will say, you know, in, in JP2's experience, I'm sure it was even more lopsided than it is now. I think it is probably changing uh, in that men are probably more inclined to be immodest with respect to clothing as a, like a higher proportion of immodesty incidents. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's true. Here in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is close to Catholic University of America, which, to be clear, does not have much of a frat culture. But uh, there is one guy's house which i'm not sure is a frat house or not but the only thing that's missing is the greek letters out front and these are the most stereotypical bros i have seen in years and they, rest assured saturday afternoon they're out with the gun show sleeveless <laughs> shirts true. It is true. crushing natty lights and they say the most stereotypical like college frat bro things and the the nomenclature i don't think has been updated in 30 years <laughs> I, no joke, heard them say, shut up, freshman, and all right, boys, let's get drunk. Classy. Like, they're still in Animal House. It's it's so funny to hear young people, like, repeat the same exact things that their counterparts were saying decades before. But yeah, so anyway, the frat bros are getting uh, some immodesty points for the guys. Too. No, there's that's definitely true. I, I was playing pickleball with some friends the other day, and I was like, my goodness, the shirts have gotten short recently haven't they this is very awkward pickleball my mom might be playing pickleball pretty soon pickleball is very fun highly recommend <laughs> but yeah so it's true this is not just like a women problem just you know take it as a little bit of shorthand and i think you're right that like particularly in the time when jp2 was writing i think it was far more common for you know women to be objectified and yeah, I think that that it's good to remember that it's not about women you need to only be looking out for guys' virtue. It's actually to call them to respect you. To me, it just sort of makes sense. When I was in business school and people would talk about, okay, what do you wear to the office? It's like, well, you should be dressing for the job that you want. Well, in the same way, I think you should be like dressing for the relationship that you want. And I think most women would say they don't want to be in a relationship in which they're objectified. And so I think showing respect for yourself signals to other people that they should respect you. And I think the way that you dress can clearly articulate who you are as a person. That doesn't have to mean that you wear like long jean dresses or something like that. You know, I think that there's a lot of, lot of room to be creative. You can be super feminine. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, when you're calling attention to things that are being sexualized as opposed to, you know, highlighting the fact that you're feminine or a woman or something like that. And and also, I think he does a good job of not absolving men of responsibility in this area, because a lot of modesty conversations can err on uh, blaming the woman for the reactions of men, where Sri is pretty clear that, well, no, men need to hold up their side of this too, and even they're, they're the ones with primary responsibility not to be the ones who are objectifying women. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's easy to or not is, as far as men are concerned, beside the point. Yeah. They still shouldn't be doing it however they're tempted to. They do a good job, I think, in both sides. Um, you know, both in the in the chapter on chastity 
and in this chapter on modesty, I think that the example from JP2 and Sri, at first they talk about um, Bathsheba and David and that David saw Bathsheba, which he didn't invite her to come bathe on the rooftop. Like he just happened to see her. But then he dwells on it. He starts asking his servant who this woman is. Obviously he takes things even further and has an affair with her. And it's very clear that like that is David's sin. That is not Bathsheba's sin. He's the one who allowed himself to continue to think about her and to take steps to do something. Um, likewise, in the modesty chapter, they talk about you know a young man at mass who like goes up to a woman and chides her for wearing jeans that are too tight, and that like it's her fault he couldn't take communion. Ultimately, that's his sin and like his responsibility to look away, find a different seat, and that's not like just the woman's responsibility for his sin. Yeah, and and in further fairness to Bathsheba, she's not bathing on the roof. David is on the roof and he looks out across to like another house and sees her bathing in her own home. It's not like she's even worse. She's out in the open air. Or <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what was your sort of I mean, I feel like we've summarized things and I know I've I've read this book before and this is first for you, Andrew. So like what was kind of your reaction as a guy who's sort of lived through plenty of these sort of like difficulties in culture. You know, you're you're like a dude who lives in a big city and not a hermit. So what, what are your thoughts? And I think it's a pretty relatable experience for guys to just be walking around minding their own business and they just turn their head and oh no, an attractive woman walks by, maybe immodestly dressed. There There are some guys who will not look away and will maybe even give like a very consciously intended second glance. And I just think, come on, man. Have some self-respect. One time I did talk to a, a complete stranger who was catcalling women. <gasps> you know, I, because I've seen, I've seen posts from, from women on like Facebook or whatever saying, I don't feel safe walking down the street today. A guy catcalled me. So I tried to do something about it, and the guy kind of dug in his heels. We, we, it was a pretty civil conversation, but I don't think he accepted it. Mm. I think I think what it really is is people don't want to be told how to behave in public in front of other people. And I mean, I think I think that you're right about like building that kind of culture. And certainly, there's been you know a lot of talk with the Me Too movement and people pushing back a lot harder. And I mean, I lived in New York for 10 years. I think it's way worse in New York in terms of both like catcalling and just billboards on the street. And like you're constantly assaulted for lack of a better word by just like the visuals. So I think that it's like a very real struggle. I think the Me Too movement has had kind of positive effects, dare I say? I think so. It was a fashionable thing in Hollywood, and it also had a positive impact on the culture. Just my own informal sense of things, I think it is a little bit less socially acceptable to have advertising or movies and TV shows that prominently feature like scantily clad women. I think it's less common now. And thank goodness for that. Yeah, I mean, I've actually read some articles calling on Apple to get rid of Dr. Dre on their board of directors because of the lyrics wow. of many of his songs, which is like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty bad. It's extremely objectifying to women. And I, I agree. I think it's ultimately, I think it's gave a way for people to have a conversation that is otherwise very difficult to have, which is 
to tell people that like it's not okay to objectify women. And yeah. I think, you know, this book is certainly calling us to virtue, but I think the flip side of it is that we need more cultural acceptability to call out people who are not doing the virtuous thing. It helps illustrate for people that if you emphasize this as a visual element in the culture, then you put women in the position of thinking that it's expected of them. Mm. The people who at the time were and still are to some extent, you know, engaging in those in that kind of graphic content, they probably wouldn't have phrased it that way. They would have said, no, we're doing it our way and they can do it their way. You do you, as, as they would say. And if you don't want to dress this way, you don't have to. But that's that's not how the culture works, because if this is presented as normal or ideal, then people are going to expect that of women in real life. Yeah, and we used to have articles at Barely about, you know, there's a lot of these young pop starlets, um, I think kind of a little bit before the Me Too movement, who, you know, basically it was like a trend to have a naked album cover and to call it empowering and like, yeah. you know, that like, oh, I'm taking control of my body when really it was just self-objectification. It was like, yeah. I'm going to objectify myself on my terms rather than saying like, I reject being objectified. And I mean, I think that's what JP2 is really getting at with the modesty discussion about it, modesty being for the woman is that it's not that you need to be embarrassed about your body. Catholics are not, we don't believe in dualism. Like the body is an inherent part of your personhood. It is a good thing. And you know, we're not Puritans, like the body isn't bad. So putting it in the right context that like the body is good, but it is meant for a very particular end. And that is not to be shared with everyone. I remember, you know, when I first read this years ago and I was rediscovering my faith, and the idea that I get to choose what I wear because I have respect for myself, I thought was actually very powerful in that I got to set my own narrative as opposed to having to do what you know the culture told me. And it's not about improper shame. It was about like actually respecting my body and respecting those who I'm interacting with. What Sri is trying to convey here with both the discussion of chastity and modesty is that what we want is the real act itself. We don't want to weaken or diminish it by by playing boy who cries wolf, mm. but with the body. The reason I hate modesty talks is that there's always people who are like, it's men's problem. Why do I have to worry about it? I mean, he speaks to this in the in the book as well. And I think that there's particularly in the United States, you know, we have a very strong Puritan culture. I think that there are, unfortunately, a lot of Catholic parents who instill a lot of fear in their daughters um, and sons. There's just a lot of resentment towards the idea of all sexuality is bad to the point where, I mean, I've talked to many women who, even in a loving marital relationship, have issues about sex because they're like, I basically was told my entire life that sex is bad. And then one day I suddenly am married and it's not bad anymore. We should never be looking at these things as bad. It's just that they are only properly understood in very particular contexts. Yeah. And the fact that it's only properly enjoyed in the marital union doesn't make sex inherently a bad thing. It's just that it cannot even begin to fully express what it's supposed to be outside of that. 
you know, it's it's a sort of like infantilizing of the reality of sexuality. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of parents, rather than telling their kids sex is good in the context of marriage, they're just like, sex is bad. You shouldn't have it until you're married. There's a feeling on both sides, on the puritanical side and also on the on the side of those who object to chastity, saying that sex is normal. You shouldn't. Boys will be boys. They're going to do it anyway kind of side. Both of them think that kids aren't capable of relating to this reality in truth. And they think that it has to be sort of oversimplified to ensure that they have the right response to it. Either sex is bad or sex is obligatory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, it definitely communicates a lack of respect for kids and their ability to understand. Like, I think yeah. most young people understand, you know, they may not want to, but and certainly there's age appropriate, you know, levels of what should be communicated. But you know, certainly a teenager, if you are able to give them the sex talk, I'm pretty sure you can also convey to them the idea that there's a context in which sex is okay and there's a context where it's not. Yeah, I mean, the kids are on TikTok. They're going to get it from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a good place to uh, wrap up with chapters 7 through 9. Uh, in episode 68, not the next episode, but the one after that, 68, we will return to Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. And we will uh, be covering chapters 10 through 12. So be sure to uh, stick with us for that. As always, Kara, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please share this podcast with your friends. It's really the best way to help a podcast gain listeners. But it also makes a difference if you leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.